Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, neuroscience, Frank Zappa, Advaita Vedanta, awakening, and much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode, I'm speaking with mystic, teacher, and author Thomas Hubel. Thomas Hubel is a contemporary mystic, international spiritual teacher, and author whose work seeks to integrate the core insights of the great wisdom traditions with the discoveries of modern science. Thomas's teachings combine somatic awareness, advanced meditative practices, and analysis of multi-generational and collective trauma with transformative processes that address trauma and shadow issues. Since 2004, Thomas has been leading workshops multi-year training programs, events, and festivals, and is the author of the book, Healing Collective Trauma. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Meditation and Healing Trauma with Thomas Hubel. Thomas, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you, Michael, for having me. I'm happy to be here with you. Looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Now, where are you physically located currently? So currently I'm located in Tel Aviv and currently means, you know, I was flying a lot every month and then last March it stopped and actually I'm enjoying the time also without planes, just being here in Tel Aviv for over Mm. a year now. Mm. Now, how did you end up in Tel Aviv? That's a great question. I think mainly the main reason is because my wife and I, my wife is from Israel. She was born here and we met actually in Germany and we Mm. lived for some years in Berlin, Germany. Mm. And since she is a professor at the art academy here, it's a little art academy. So they told her that she is also like an international artist. So she has a studio in Berlin and one in Tel Aviv. And the university told her 10 years ago, so she either gives up her position or she comes back. And so then we decided to come back. So I really enjoy Israel. And then it turns out, of course, that, you know, a lot of my work is deeply connected to what's also happening here in the Middle East. So it's interesting for me also to be here from other reasons, basically. That's really interesting. Yeah, I've never had a guest from Tel Aviv before, so or who's living in Tel Aviv. Now, you brought up like how the region is related to your work. So I'm curious if you can kind of unpack that a little bit for us. How is Tel Aviv related to the work you're doing? Yeah, actually, now that you're asking, it's kind of multiple levels. One is that like one part of my work is, I mean, the whole work is, but the focus is deeply mystical, deeply interested in transcendence and Israel is simply a deeply spiritual place. Mm. And on the other hand, the other focus of my work is trauma and collective trauma. And that's also what brought me here in a way because I started doing a lot of collective trauma work 20 years ago in Germany and then between Germany and Israel. And then now I'm living here in Israel. And of course, there's the Israel-Palestine conflict, there's the Holocaust, there's like the whole Middle Eastern tensions. So I think there's a spiritual dimension of that reason that's connected to my kind of deep mystical interest. And then there is the 
my interest how collective trauma work can contribute to peace building, to healing, to changing certain structures in our societies that are based on collective trauma fields that are thousands of years old and that we often don't recognize as such. And at the end of the day, I think that these thousands of years of trauma are at the root of what the spiritual traditions also are looking for to transcend separation. And I think trauma creates a sense of separation. And so I think that deep down in the deep base of consciousness, they are deeply interrelated, these two focal points that I find here. So fascinating. I'm curious how you began working with trauma and spirituality together. Mm. I think my path showed that a little bit. I mean, I grew up as a boy in the suburbs of Vienna and in Vienna. And, you know, my grandparents went through the Second World War on both sides, on my father and mother's side. And, you know, as a boy, I saw certain symptoms that with my knowledge of today, of course, I understand in a very different way. But... At that time, nobody told me that certain, you know, there were no post-it stickers or sign, sign arrows that showed, okay, this is a trauma symptom, that's a trauma symptom, that's a trauma symptom. So for me, I grew up and like many people, I think, grow up in a world where we call life, that's how life is, or that's how life is simply, it's normal. And actually, it's not normal. There are hidden wounds producing some side effects that we experience with our parents, our grandparents, in our society, with our teachers, with other people and friends. And so that, I think that's kind of also part of it. And when I was 16, I started to be a volunteer for the Red Cross and I became a paramedic while I still finished high school and then also in my first years of studying medicine. I was deeply into this kind of emergency medicine, paramedic work, which I loved and I did for eight or nine years as a volunteer. And that was a deep learning too for me. I learned so much about society, about different, you know, parts of society, socioeconomic layers of society, about people in crisis and emergency situations, and about myself in situations where... I needed to be fast, precise, grounded. So this was another big period. Within that period, when I was 19, I felt a strong inner pull to meditate. And I did that from one day to another, and then I, it kind of became a daily practice. What kind of meditation were you practicing at that early stage? Yeah, I suddenly felt, and I didn't read any books about meditation at that time. I just felt that I knew that there is a place in my heart where it's quiet. And I could go there and just rest in that silence. And also have some kind of like inner communication. That's the best word. It doesn't fully describe the process, but it's kind of where somehow insights emerged in me. So every day from that day on, I stayed in this kind of inner contemplation or meditation. And it was very good for me also as a medical student. I did that every day. And then throughout my medical study, when I was 26, I left my medical studies and I went on a four-year meditation retreat because that 
place inside became stronger and stronger over the time. And like before that, I did already, you know, I practice yoga and practice like all kinds of modalities. I read a lot of Ken Wilber books and Aurobindo and Ramana Maharshi and like many things that I just swallowed, you know, I like, I felt like food for my soul that nobody told me before. Hmm. And like, I felt deeply resonant. And then at 26, I felt, okay, that's it. And it was hard because I loved medicine and I was deeply into emergency medicine. And I left and I started to meditate pretty much every day for hours. <laughs> this was still at home? No, I left and then first I went to India for a shorter time. And then I came back and I basically spent a lot of time at a countryside house in the uh, Czech Republic in the mm -hmm. Bohemian forest. That sounds really nice. Okay, so how long did you spend just meditating? Yeah, I think it was over a period. Of course, I was also married at that time. And like my wife at that time was often either with me there or I spent some days alone in this countryside house. And then we were back together. But I was meditating a lot. And it was a period of four years. Then I came back to mm -hmm. Vienna. And then it was almost another year. And I knew all the time that kind of my life will, once I'm ready or it's ready, so then I will, somehow something will happen in my life to, you know, that life will pick me to, I don't know, pass on what I learned. Because these four years were very deep. And of course, also my parents said, Thomas, why are you, you know, throwing everything, your studies and everything, you're giving up just to do nothing. And I always said, no, I'm not doing nothing. I'm studying, but in a different way. And so this was a very meaningful time for me. It showed me a lot about different kind of dimensions of consciousness and meditative states and energy and space and structure and some of the mystical principles, basically. And did you have like a particular teacher at that time? No. I mean, I studied some things before that and... In this time, I had a very strong inner guidance. I knew exactly every step, like every next step was very clear to me. Like I practiced something and then I had another impulse and then it went deeper and then another impulse and it went deeper. It was kind of very interesting. Also now when I look back, you know, at that time I just did it. But now when I look back, there was a very strong trajectory throughout this time and also some deep openings. Yeah. How would you describe that trajectory? Like this kind of inner guidance took me deeper and deeper through various practices into, I don't know, it was like shedding, shedding layers of myself to come into deeper aspects of or deeper states of my meditation and mm. also deeper states of revealing like how life works. I don't know, it's hard to say in words, but like the composition, how certain things are interconnected and how, in a way, the foundations of our reality are composed, I found this very interesting. I was very motivated and I was looking forward every day it was mm -hmm. to really explore. It was very interesting. It wasn't like I had to practice, you know, I wanted to practice. And so 
Yeah, that was for me like a very important part of my life and my also development. And of course, I did uh, stuff like psychotherapy for five or six years before I did uh, like a lot of personal work also or personal healing work already before I went to these six years. So that was also important for me on my path. Yeah, and then my work started somehow. So from being very quiet, very much, you know, I lived a very simple life. I had some money saved and I didn't need a lot of money. I was very happy with the practice. Yeah, and then it changed and I started to travel and people invited me to run groups and yeah, and then another life started. <laughs> <laughs> and so what was that like when you began to teach? Yeah, it was interesting because like at first, you know, I simply taught what I practiced myself and uh, what I felt like I had a deeper grounding in these practices. And I felt also that a lot of practice in community when you're not sitting in solitude and it needs a lot of relational awareness practices. So we developed like what we call transparent communication, but it's it's a term that is already old that doesn't really describe what we do. It's not transparent because we just share everything. It's transparent because of using like contemplative attunement practices to come into a resonance with each other and feel each other and use our subtle sensing to be connected to each other when we go through processes. And, and somehow... I was always interested also in my meditation time in collective fields. And pretty soon after I started teaching, these kind of eruptions of collective trauma material, especially in the groups in Germany, imagine there are 80 or 100 people in a room and 40 or 50 have at once like a strong emotional release, see inner images of the war and the Holocaust, and that was strong. I remember the first time it was a very strong experience. And then we integrated it. And then it kept happening with every group, just different people, a similar process. Uh, often on the third or fourth day, like a similar process came up in the groups. And so then I started to study that. And then I learned a lot through my groups. And now it's kind of almost 20 years ago that, first of all, many people think trauma is like something is wrong with me. The second thing is a personal thing, which it is also, but it's more than that. It's a personal and it's a collective phenomenon and they belong together. Like there's a web of thousands of years of traumatizations. And I believe that some of it, every one of us carries inside or we live in it and we carry it inside. So I learned a lot about this kind of what I call the, the interdependence of the individual and the whole or the individual and the collective, how that bigger trauma field that we have been born into actually works and how the collective unconscious holds a lot of split of information. And then in the spiritual practices, we, you know, we practice a lot of presencing or presence practice, but the split of past interferes with it. So some people, for example, say, listen, it's so hard to calm my mind. And I say, yeah, because if you look at your thoughts, it's hard to calm your mind because that's totally not the point. The point is that you are not aware of the stress 
that speeds up your thinking. And without the stress in your nervous system, you don't have such a fast mind. Then it's much easier to go to silent states. But the stress that is unconscious is part of our trauma history. And that's why even for many contemplative practitioners, at least to a certain extent, trauma informed is very helpful because it kind of gives us great tools to deal with the more difficult parts of our practice. Now, I notice a lot of people report having trauma, personal trauma, and this comes up very often as soon as their meditation starts to settle down a little bit. You know, that very first experience when the meditation starts to settle down a little bit, then with these sorts of folks, it can be the case that some traumatic type material comes up if that's present. And here you're introducing the possibility that it's not only personal trauma, but it's collective trauma or potentially both. And so I'm curious about two things, but let's start with how do you distinguish, how do you know the difference if someone's experiencing, you know, a personal trauma reaction or collective trauma? Yeah, that's beautiful. First of all, I'm happy you're saying that the practice, because that's so important to know that if my nervous system settles down, more stuff will come up. And many people start doubting their practice because there are more beautiful phases. And then something happens and suddenly you feel much more disturbed inside. You feel much more restless or, you know, disconnected. And with a great guide, as you said it before, then somebody can give us a guidance and help us to go through these phases. That's very important because otherwise I call it meditation crisis, but it's, it's actually a detox process of the nervous system. Yeah, this is so fascinating because people often tell me like, oh, I think my meditation's gone backwards or somehow I've lost it. And, you know, of course they haven't lost it or gone backwards. It's that they've uncovered some stuff that they need to work with. And so they're actually deepening, right? And, yes. and encountering this upsetting material. Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's right. Very true. And it's very important because without a guide or a mentor or a teacher, you know, when we hit these places, as you said, people think something's wrong or people stop it. Instead of saying, wow, something is progressing because the nervous system switches from stress into relaxation in meditation and from a certain level of relaxation, I often say it's what the mystical teachings call space. When space appears, there's reflect, which is becoming aware. There's digest, which means stuff comes up to be digested. And then there is integrate, which means learning. So I become aware of deeper disturbance. I am able to digest it if I have the right circumstances. And then I can integrate it and I become a fuller human being. And I and the collective system learn something, which is fascinating. It's great. But in that phase, as you said, it needs somebody that somebody can come to you and say, listen, Michael, that's happening for me. And I get a reflection to stay like with the practice. I think that's crucial what you said. I just want to underline that I think that's very important for many practitioners to hear again and again, because once we are in that phase, we might doubt, even when we heard it before, that that's the process that's happening. And of course, everyone's individual. And yet I'm curious if you have a basic way to help determine 
whether someone is experiencing collective or personal trauma? You know, every one of us needs to do, I believe, a certain amount of individual trauma work in order to create a more coherent and mature self. Because in order I can transcend and include, or I need to include and transcend. Like shadow, split of shadow needs to be first included and then transcended. What I'm saying is, in doubt, go to the innermost circle of intimacy, which is your self-contact and your personal experience. Then there's usually between the individual and the collective, there is our ancestral trauma work, which means if my grandparents, for example, were in, I don't know, my grandfather was in the war. So like the trauma that he experienced through getting injured is also part of the stream of our family system. And the epigenetics show more and more how trauma aspects are being passed on through epigenetic changes, especially through sperm cells. We can show this already, is passed on to the next generation. So it might be that I have already higher anxiety levels or higher stress levels just because I got it as an ancestral transmission. Mm-hmm. So then we expand the trauma work and include the traumatization of our ancestors. And since my grandfather was also, or my grandparents were also part of a war situation, we are all kind of in the aftermath of a massive, you know, kind of world war. So that's the collective trauma dimension. And then for the next generations, it creates what I often call the permafrost of our society that trauma has a kind of a cultural creative dimension that we create societal structures that are ice, not alive structures of consciousness. They are built out of frozen past and they are repetitive. So they create repetitive social symptoms that we often call, okay, that's how life is. And I would say, no, that's not how life is. That's how life is when it's hurt And once we know what is hurt, we can take care of the wound. But if we call it normal, so we just neglect the wound. And we have to, I believe, start to call the structures. And if you take it now out of Europe and you go to slavery and racism or the Native American genocide or structural violence in the U.S., there are 400 years of slavery and racism that created frozen structures in our society that do not want to evolve. They cannot evolve and they cannot be updated because they are frozen. It's like you see something is frozen in the ice, it's not going to develop because it's frozen. You need to de-ice it first and then it can like channel the energy back into the entire system. Otherwise, it's just on hold. It's a prisoner in time. Or of time. And I think that's the, the collective trauma structure, but many of us grew up in a collectively traumatized field. Our teachers are traumatized, our parents to a certain degree, our grandparents, our friends at school. So I grew up and I have been conditioned, not only by my social conditioning, as we call it, it's social conditioning plus trauma conditioning. And that's why I think it's like becoming aware of collective trauma structures is a level of awakening 
basically, because its nature is that it's split off and unconscious. So even if I have deeper states of meditation, I'm not necessarily becoming aware of those fragmented trauma structures because they are pushed into the unconscious. So I can have very high meditation states and still be in the same way unconscious because I'm not aware that I'm unconscious. So that's one thing. Then you ask me for the discernment. So if I am not able to discern, it's better to go back to my personal trauma work and then expand the map as I become more stable in my own maturity, then I can expand the work and include my ancestors or include the collective sensing that groups, hundreds or thousands of people can start a system sensing process, which we call CTIP, collective trauma integration processes, where the groups of people become in a way the surface to integrate at least a portion of the split of collective field. So, and I think we are uh, kind of at the threshold of doing much more collective healing work in the future and technology, what we are using now to speak to each other over thousands of miles, I think has the power to synchronize that kind of work for us. So that's a great chance. Yeah, very fascinating and inspiring possibility. I'm interested in these repetitive traumatic structures in culture or in society. You gave some great examples of the ones in Europe, the ones in Israel, the ones in the U.S. Those still are kind of big concepts. And I'm curious if you can point out some really concrete examples to kind of bring it a little to life. Like, what's a very concrete example of a collective trauma structure in society? Let's see, I think one collective trauma structure is, for example, language. That there is the live part of language, and then there is the indirect, unconscious dimension of the language that encodes trauma. And due to the fact that we confirm that language in each other, we fixate in a way the trauma. So this sounds very complicated, but now here's an example. If I say, Michael, I talk to you and suddenly I have a strong tension in my throat. So you could say, okay, yeah, you understand what I'm saying. But what I told you is the unconscious description of like an unconscious process that I call tension. Mm -hmm. So I use a noun tension to describe what is a process because I'm not aware of how I made my throat tight. I'm telling you, I feel a tension in my throat, but the tension is the unconscious fixated description of a process. As long as I'm not becoming aware of the process, I cannot heal that part in myself so that tomorrow I will not have a tension in my throat. Most of the people have tensions all over their body, muscle tensions, and my heart is tight and closed. Yeah, but who closed it? So if in the moment you understand what tension means and say, oh, yes, I'm sorry to hear that. In the moment you invest chi, life energy, in my unconscious description. So we closed actually a circuit 
to fixate the nature of attention, which doesn't exist. It's always a process. So trauma, on the one hand, creates unupdatable areas in life. They're frozen in ice and new information can't get there. In the regular personal development work, we call that regression. Somebody was traumatized at age two and the partner, the intimate partner triggers that place. The person answers in a way becomes reactive and it gets scared to lose the partner, which is a fear that is very early. It's nothing to do with the current relationship. So that's one thing. The same thing we could call structural racism. And it's a fixated structure that is not non-emergent. It's not updating itself. It seems like it needs a crisis or a revolution or some sort of breakdown in order to evolve into something new. Every time we need a breakdown, we are actually dealing not with structures of consciousness. We're dealing with rigid or frozen structures. That's very important because the level of collective fear and the level of collective frozenness will prevent us to deal with the COVID crisis or with a climate change as one nation or one global community. It will always create fragmentation. And the other part where we can see that is for many of us, it was very important as children to not see certain things. When as a baby, somebody comes too close, too fast, many times, I need to defocus my eyes in order not to get overwhelmed every time. If children experience domestic violence, parents are constantly fighting. So there are many, many reasons why reducing our clarity and capacity to see is being reduced. Like we show this often in our groups, how the trauma actually is pulls out energy from the frontal cortex and from the seeing and creates like a, an unconscious not seeing on a certain level of development. And the collective version of it is what we call, and also Otto Schama calls, like collective absence. There are areas in our collective body where we collectively don't see. And one symptom of that is that, for example, I believe that most of the people nowadays that are users of technology and the internet consume more information that they can process and feel. Which means, for example, I read something on the news, some terror attack or somebody shot around in a school or now with COVID, all the time new news about COVID. And I can intellectually hear or understand what a school shooting means. But most probably for most of the people, the emotional, the physical, and the system sensing aspect of my awareness is overwhelmed because it's simply very difficult to feel such an event. So often we are very informed intellectually, but we are not contemporary witnesses as holistic beings because we, we defend ourselves against that intensity because it's very painful. If millions of people do that, it creates a physical and emotional absencing. 
And that absence has an effect. Or when we look at this on the ancestral level, we could say, recently somebody asked me in a collective trauma course, like, am I responsible for the atrocities that one of my ancestors committed? And I said, no, you're not responsible for the actions of your ancestor, of your grandfather. But responsibility means that you have the ability to respond to the after effects of those choices. So if I say, oh, it's so hard for me to look at what my grandfather did, I just want to be with my life now and with the future because it's too hard for me to look back. If it's the same amount of energy that I can see in my past, I can see in my life today because I'm not able to be responsible in the ancestral lineage that I come from. So it's an unintegrated part in myself and that has a culturally creative aspect. And so we see that in the social issues, the medical issues, the mental issues, the criminality rates, we see this in, in many, many recurrent issues that arise in our culture. Also the social fragmentations that we see now in when we look at how people respond to COVID. There's the section that thinks it's a conspiracy. There's the sections that wants to get it there and take it there and doesn't believe in the virus. So there is a very fragmented society. And then there is a very fragmented governing structure that is a representation of it. And all of those things show, I believe, all the time trauma symptoms. Something that I've noticed in my own work and also with others is that when traumatic material arises, it can feel really isolating, like we feel separate. It puts us into a feeling of distancing or separation. I'm curious how you work with that, if you've noticed that and how you work with it. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that's actually one of the fundamental trauma symptoms is separation. I think actually this collective trauma field that I'm talking about that is thousands and thousands of years old is kind of a net throughout the generations and partly healed and partly re-traumatized and it's going on. And that's why we all have been born into a partly conscious and a partly unconscious experience. And so at the base of our experience is often separation and it became normal. It seems like, okay, that's how life is. And again, I would say, no, that's how life is when it's hurt. And if we know how to take care of wounds, we can also take care of separation. And I absolutely agree with you. When we get triggered, we feel the fragmentation. We feel either numb or very stressed or we feel disconnected from our environment. We often feel like a ghost and not fully present or like a kind of two-dimensional. We often feel like we don't belong or stagnations. And we often feel that we are not really present because we are dealing with a lot of emotions that are stored in our past. When we speak about trauma and collective trauma, I was also interested how you experience this in your work, how what I shared about these processes is coming up for you in your own group work or meditation work. Yeah, you know, the main thing about it is what I shared, which is that it's common for personal trauma to show up, or at least what seems to be personal trauma, when people 
kind of cross a threshold into a deeper level of practice. Very often some of the stuff that's been hiding under the surface, when we delve deeper below the surface, suddenly that material is revealed. And as we were mentioning, you know, that can begin to feel like, oh, I'm going backwards or something's wrong or my practice isn't working anymore. But of course, it's a symptom of the practice actually working very well and starting to reveal what's hidden under the surface so it can get healed. Now, typically, as I mentioned, I will immediately, if someone's reporting this, if it's overwhelming in any way or swamping them or flooding them, all these trauma symptoms where it's kind of too much, I immediately send them to a trauma therapist so they can get professional help with that mm-hmm. because I'm not qualified to, you know, help someone as a trauma therapist would. However, then once they've got that going, actually when it first begins, I often will ask them to either stop meditating or not to meditate very much or to only do kind of soothing, relaxing stuff for now because we don't want to keep digging in there in the meditation until they get their professional help going, you know, and because I don't want them to serially re-traumatize themselves. So if they're digging in very strongly on their own and they keep getting triggered and re-triggered and re-triggered, that's not helpful. But once they're in a place with their therapy that they can then handle the material that's coming up, then we begin working very deeply with the emotions that are arising and with the energy in the body and with images that arise in the mind and so on to begin to process that material very deeply. So what I'm doing is related to what you're talking about, although I step out for the hardcore trauma therapy piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful to hear. And I think it's very progressive and it's uh, bringing deep meditation or contemplative practices in a very responsible way together with the trauma therapy, the psychotherapy. And I think that's beautiful. I think it's a great example for what's a healthy, also spiritual practice. Yeah, you know, the thing that I was exposed to via friends and partners and so on who have very deep trauma therapy training is the way that we can actually make it worse if we just keep going in and re-experiencing it over and over without having any help or tools to work with it. Exactly. Yeah. And so for you, do you also send people to, for example, do something like somatic experiencing work or some of these other deep trauma healing therapies? Or do you feel like what you're doing addresses all those same things in that way? Yeah, both in a way. I think I developed like a very deep process work for individual trauma as well. And I'm doing this also very often in a deep way with people in the groups. But given that our trainings and groups are so large often, we always have a a whole team of therapists and many of them are either SE trained or trained in another trauma modality. So there are many therapists in our field. We call this assistant team. And so there are always more senior assistants and then there are assistants and then there are people in training. And so we have a whole study system also, a supervised study system where people can 
be part of our training programs as a support team. And in the evenings, we always review the whole one-on-one sessions that are happening. And many people go to one-on-one sessions during, let's say we have a seven-day program, then you know, we do the work that we do and then either I work with people and then one of my assistants takes over and does some integration work or when people need one-on-one sessions, they go and there's always a whole team available for it. But of course, we recommend to many people that come to our trainings to have in parallel also like a more committed therapy when we feel that that's needed. And sometimes we also make this a requirement. We say you can be in the training only if that's what you do. And then, you know, we refer people to many therapists that we somehow know or affiliated with. And yeah, I think that that's very important. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Many of the spiritual traditions recognize this. And yet it's sort of traditional that if you've got some big psychological stuff going on, that you just don't do meditation practice, right? You wouldn't be considered a candidate for doing that. And so they recognize that this can happen, but they often didn't have a lot of resources for someone who had some material like this coming up, especially if it was acute. And so I think it's actually a new development that we have these somatically informed and also, you know, biologically based to a certain extent, trauma modalities and psychological healing modalities that we can integrate with these practices or at least allow them to work synergistically side by side available for people who have trauma coming up. And of course, as you keep pointing out, even if we don't have individual trauma, we live like here in the States, the structural racism trauma is huge. I think it's very interesting how you point out how kind of frozen these can be. And that's certainly the case. So we're all involved in these structures and they can be not only kind of frozen to anthropomorphize it for a moment, they almost have like a self-defense quality where when you try to work with something like structural racism, it deflects that. It actually sort of pushes back in a social way. It has its own sort of way that it keeps itself in place. And so again, even if we don't have these personally, there's a lot that we can work on in our family systems and in our societies. So it's really powerful stuff. Exactly. It's beautiful how you put it. And I also love it that you said that it's a new development to combine all those modalities and create a bigger field of work and know what's the best thing to do at which time in our development. So I think that's a very high intelligence that's unfolding and collaboration and networking and a lot of exchange are very needed to have a very highly intelligent network of practice. So that's beautiful. And as you said, the defense mechanisms in our own psyche and in our own kind of trauma structure they are highly intelligent and we need to learn to, you know, get to know them in order to dissolve or change them from inside out. And that's only possible if something more trustworthy comes into our development than that specific defense mechanism, for example, more coherent relations or, you know, healing environments and so on. And that when we look at structural racism, that it's a symptom of a much deeper collective trauma field. And as long as we bump against the defense of the trauma field, it will 
be very hard to change it. But if we get to the underlying forces that we can step by step bring into our awareness, also the defense mechanism that you spoke about can slowly relax and melt and be turned into owned aspects of every one of us. Because I often say, you know, we are all shareholders of the collective unconscious and we need to take back our shares. If you want to create a collective feeling, we need to, you know, to take back our shares and stop investing into structural violence. And often by saying, I don't have any trauma, I am an investor. That's very important because I'm not aware of how by living in a culture, I am an investor in most probably in some of the collective trauma structures. And that exploration is simply very, very needed, as you said. Good. So if we're noticing some of this arising, coming up in ourselves, in our practice, you know, of course, we can go to trauma therapy and get various uh, direct help by professionals. But I'm curious, what would you recommend someone do also for themselves when they Mm -hmm. notice traumatic material coming up in meditation? I think it's responsible to go to a professional if I see that the trauma material really overwhelms me and it's not something that I can deal with by myself, that I can deal with together with my partner in my relationship, together as a family when we have issues in the family system. So we always say the resources or the coherence are the base that has the power to integrate the fragmentation. But if the fragmentation is simply too strong, so I need support. So that's where the the professional comes in. And for myself is, first of all, that we know that most of the things that we are dealing with in meditation, contemplation, but also our daily life, are the symptoms of the trauma. It's not the trauma itself. It's the smoke and it's not the fire. And what we can do, like, because I believe that spiritual practice, like contemplative and meditative practice, can either be an excellent bypass not to try to deal with the trauma or the difficulties in life, or it can be an excellent resource. If it supports me to be also with the manageable or the discomfort that I can still experience, then it makes me stronger to go through the discomfort. Number one practice is that I'm going through my practice when it's beautiful and quiet and open and like it's amazing. And I'm going equally through it when it's not so open, when it feels more tight that I become more and more aware of dissociated fields, that I maybe fears come up or all kinds of emotions come up, and my meditation feels more disturbed, as we said before. So that I know that all of this is part of being a more and more experienced meditator. The second step is that I see that my body is a cup, is the structure, and one part of healing is grounding my internal process through the body. And often spiritual practitioners want to get out of the body in a way to strengthen the part that anyway left. And because to be in the body is not always comfortable, but that's where the healing happens. So an embodied spiritual practice is important that is somatic, 
or somatic based is also very important. And then to see that I learn to work with grounding my emotions in the body and also becoming aware that dissociation, like when I feel numb, is something that I feel. Numbness is something that many people either are not aware of or is something that we want to get over with. Like we want to get into the feeling because we think feeling is good. But if I'm numb, I'm saying I'm touching a field in myself, a place where I was overwhelmed and numbing was better than feeling. Because as kids, we haven't had many chances to deal with overwhelm. And one of them was numb. I make myself numb. I stop feeling. And in the meditation, many practitioners touch dissociated fields that unrecognized lead to stagnation in the practice. Recognized, it leads to deepening. Because if I learn to stay with the uh, numbness or dissociation, then it often opens up into a deeper sensing and feeling. And the third part is also that we all learn or reframe together as spiritual communities that what we often call weakness, what we often call difficulty, what, what we call pattern or defense mechanism These are highly, highly intelligent functions that we often do not understand. And that's why we want to get rid of it. So the sentence, oh, I still have that pattern, is a sign of me not being aware of my pattern. Because it says that I still have it means I shouldn't have it. And that's already the shadow. That's how I stay stuck. Because if it's active in me, it still has a reason and it has a purpose. And I need to develop kind of a different part of myself in order to let go of that pattern naturally. I cannot break the pattern. I can only dissolve it and create something new. And I think that the shadow appears in us as a difficulty or problem that I want to get rid of is one of the fundamental traps where many practitioners think, oh, if I just hadn't that pattern or that difficulty in my life, my life would be great. <laughs> no, the, the obstacles are not in the way, they are the way. The purpose of our life is our expression, our practice, our transcendence, our contribution to society, For some of us, it's also our career, maybe. But it's also the integration of the difficulties. That's not, oh, once I'm done with that, then I will live my purpose. No, my purpose is the integration as much as the expression. And that internal split, I think, is already a sign of the trauma. And these are just a few points, but I don't want to make this answer too long now that we can be mindful of as we practice, that can make our life easier and more precise. And so this is some of what we might do individually in our practice, in addition, again, to seeing professionals. 
I'm curious if you also recommend relational practice or do, you know, some type of group practice. It sounds like you do. So I'm curious if you would pack that a little bit. Yes. So that's what we do. As it's beautifully said, so there is the individual practice that I can do in myself and with myself. Then there is the dyadic or relational practice where, for example, if I come to you and say, listen, Michael, I'm really disturbed in my life. I'm really scared because this and that is happening. And you open a space for me that is attuned, where you want to feel my stress with me, and you listen to me, then you create a co-regulative environment that helps my nervous system to regulate itself. And so we say once it's shared, it's already, it enters like a wider field of intelligence, my difficulty. So there's that power of relation and a lot of trauma has been inflicted through inappropriate relation. And now relating is a key element of its healing. So presence and relation is very powerful. The next step is that when I look at you, then the Michael that I see or hear happens already in my brain. It's not that I see the Michael that's out there. I see that the Michael that appears as a visual in me is already like a perception in me. Mental construct, yeah. Yeah, it's a construct and it's you being coded like a coat. You're coated in my perception. And the way I find out if the Michael in me is congruent with the Michael out there with you is through relating. Relating is a fast updating of the Michael in myself. So when I sense you while we speak, and if I am in resonance with you as we speak here, so then I update you as a process in myself all the time. It's like a data streaming. But often relation is a downloaded video onto the hard drive, which means I'm not connected to you and I'm dealing with my past image of you. So you become a construct in me if I lose my sensing of you because the basic relational building block is I feel you feeling me. When I feel how you feel me, our nervous systems are in a resonance field. Resonance is the language of relating. And so I can update the Michael that lives in me through a constant data streaming but if I lose my connection to you, my felt connection, then I start thinking about you and then you become a mental construct. And then actually the Michael in me is already old. I'm not anymore seeing you, I'm seeing an image of you. And I think that's a very important process. And on a collective level, because you mentioned the groups, the same process happens when we are hundreds of people in a room and People attune to each other, people feel each other, and there's kind of a system sensing. So the social organism becomes more aware of its own process, which is a conscious process, basically. And we all contribute to this. So contributing to a group experience is creating collective coherence. And collective coherence is the resource that helps us to integrate collective trauma. And that's why I think, you know, we will still in the future do individual trauma work, 
but we will also develop much more functional tools for much wider collective work that needs to be done in groups with a high level of relational competence and a high level of presencing or presence work, mindfulness, so that all of that creates a coherence field that can deal with 400 years of racism, that can deal with, you know, a Holocaust, of course, in portions, and as it's adequate and appropriate, that kind of engine is a very intelligent computer. You know, we as a group are a super intelligent biocomputer, especially when we are synchronized. So the data flow between us is very high. And that's, I think, what some mystical traditions call that the web of life, the third-person perspective of awakening, is a flow of light. So then the light flows through all of us, and we call it group relation or group presence. And so what are you currently developing? What are you making new these days? Yeah, on the one hand, we are developing the School for Collective Trauma Integration. Like it's a long training program where people can go through what we call the individual trauma integration, ancestral trauma integration, like learning also about group work and how individuals can heal in collective spaces because collective spaces are very powerful. And then the collective facilitation work. So that's one thing we work on. And in our NGO, the Pocket Project, we are working on the running at the moment, 23, we call them international labs. These are groups of people that meet regularly that explore various collective trauma fields like racism in the US, the Holocaust, colonialism in Africa, colonialism in Latin America, in Australia, in the Middle Eastern conflict, gender violence, like various different collective trauma fields that are being explored in those hubs. So these are hundreds of people exploring various topics. And then we create and created a meta-learning system within that NGO and the supervision system. We have a training system for facilitators and facilitator teams. So that's one. And then we are on the way to develop some countrywide collective trauma processes so that we look at how to work with the biggest systems in a society to make it more trauma-informed and to work with the various stakeholders in those systems to bring in much more collective and individual trauma understanding. For example, in the medical field, in the education field, in the army, in the in various fields that make up a society. And so we do this through in-person classes, through online classes, and also through the NGO work. We also work, of course, with many volunteers that are interested in that and do write publications. And so now, in a way, the individual ancestral collective work that we developed over many years are coming together through a kind of methodology, I would say, that is teachable. And it, it's deeply grounded in the mystical and transpersonal dimension also. So yeah, that's what we are developing right now. It's just a part of it. An extension of the practice from the individual mindfulness practice, the relational mindfulness practice, on the collective level, we have the group processes or large group processes, but we also, 
have a process that's called global social witnessing. That means that, for example, if I take one news feed into my meditation, so I have a morning meditation, I meditate maybe an hour or half an hour, and the last five or 10 minutes, I take something that happened in society and I learn to presence, to tune in with, and to feel what's actually happening in me, what's my relation to that event. And so when something more traumatic happens in society, there's a high tendency, as I said before, to intellectually read about it, but then to dissociate from it because it's uncomfortable. And if I'm working my own personal trauma right now, and I'm anyway shaky, so that's not the right practice. But if I feel more stable inside at the moment, then I can see, okay, what is actually when I practice some system sensing? System means the social body. So I take anything that happened from a political argument that I totally don't agree with to a traumatic event in our society or anything, basically, that it's not immediately easy for me to relate to. And then I witness how my physical body responds to that, How what's the emotion that comes up, what's my mental framing of that event, and what's my relation? Do I feel disconnected and protected or withdrawn? Do I feel open? And can I sense what happens in society or in that part of culture. And most of the time we come aware of that when it's difficult news, the word difficult speaks to an unconscious element. And that unconscious element is something that when I do such a practice can slowly arise more for me in my own awareness. That, for example, I hear about a traumatic event and I feel numb. And if I don't have this idea that I should feel something, you know, that feeling is great. No, I just want to be very precise who I am in this moment in relation to that event. Because if I can't feel it, I feel separate from that event. There is no intimacy. And then we say, of course, there is no intimacy because it's difficult. Yeah, but that whole thing, my difficulty with that event and the event itself are a part of a collective trauma field. And so bringing more awareness, infusing the collective body, like the collective societal body with more awareness is also a practice. And if more and more people do that, the absence first of all, becomes more obvious. But secondly, we will learn to slowly transform absence into presence. Because absence is based on the past or disconnected trauma. And presence is a result of integration. I often say integrated history is presence. Now, between you, Michael, and I, when we speak here, and we can resonate with each other, we can understand each other's, you know, dialogues, we can be in a flow with each other. These are hundreds of thousands of years of life or millions of years of life having a conversation because my body contains all that evolutionary history and yours also. So where we are integrated, it is our structures of consciousness that are part of presence including the deep states of consciousness. But 
unintegrated history is split off and frozen, and that's why it's the past, and that's why it's old, it's distant, it's far away in time and in space. And I think through like a more collective practice as part of my mindfulness practice, I can become part of the process of making the social absencing at least more aware in myself and maybe in groups with others, and then be part of a a step-by-step integration process. This is also part of the collective healing work. Well, thank you so very much for having this conversation with me today, Thomas. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Michael. What a beautiful conversation and very sensitive and resonant. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Thomas. All right, bye-bye. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. 
And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. Listening.